Did you, you always wear glasses. Did they, did cataract surgery fix your near, farce, nearsightedness? It, yeah, it, it, it fixed the upper part. Wow. <laughs> Just, I, I could have paid more and had the bottom part fixed, but I actually like wearing glasses because I like giant bags under my eyes. Totally. And my, my daughter says that my glasses are makeup. In, in oh yeah, makeup. Yeah, yeah, t- yeah. For me as well. I mean, I I haven't worn contacts in ten years because I'm like, now nah, no. Yeah. I'm gonna just hide behind these glasses. It's, exactly. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, last week's super fog, which resulted in a deadly pileup on Interstate 55, was the result of a historic drought the area is experiencing. And since 2005, around 2,200 local newspapers have closed, and one-fifth of the nation now lives in a news desert with no coverage of important local events. As a result, there's a growing movement of community-focused journalism across the nation that is shifting how the critical stories of our time are being told. Karen Gadbois, the Lens co-founder and executive director, has been part of an effort to strengthen local independent news organizations. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus. Hey, Delaney. Hi, Carolyn. Managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you? Good. And the co-founder and executive director of The Lens, Karen Gadbois. Hey, Karen. Hello. Hi. All right, so Delaney, tell us what happened. I think first off, let's start with this um, this pileup on Interstate 55, which made national news. The, the, the pictures were pretty extraordinary. What happened? What was the setup there? Yeah, so last Monday morning uh, was a very, very tragic, almost apocalyptic-looking scene. Um, there, there was a 168 car pileup on the highway, specifically on the Mon- the Manchek Swamp Bridge on I-55. And this happened due to this um, technical phenomena, this a meteorological phenomena called super fog. Um, and that occurs when thick smoke mixes with moist fog. And there is... A, a marsh fire burning in New Orleans East that supplied this smoke and the weather conditions were apropos for seasonal fog. And so they combined creating whiteout conditions on September 23rd and, and zero visibility on this dangerous stretch of I-55 that is a bridge with really nowhere to, to pull off. So this this pile up occurred, and unfortunately, seven the death toll stood at seven. Was there any way for this to be uh, predicted and and drivers to be alerted that that something like this might happen, or did it just it was just a perfect storm, if you will? Yes, there there was an alert that went out from the National Weather Service, New Orleans, um, but I. Don't think that everybody receives those. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in Jefferson Parish, where they were having a similar problem from the Lafitte fire, they rolled out portable devices to have 
signs to say warning, fog ahead, low visibility. Um, and I don't, I, I did not travel on I-55 that day. So I'm not sure. I don't think those were available on the bridge. Um, there might not be a place to put them or there wasn't the resource that afford thought to do it, but th there was a level of warning. I just don't think it reached everybody efficiently. And three of those vehicles were uh, tractor trailers. Mm -hmm. uh, at least one of them caught on fire, which added to the mayhem at the scene um, and burned a few surrounding vehicles and left a lot of injuries. Wow. There were stories of the survivors and one of them, and one of them, the guy said he was so glad that his truck went off into the river because he thought he couldn't survive if his, his truck stayed on the bridge. All right. So tell us about the peat fire. A marsh fire is burning on a parcel of private land between Bayou Sauvage Urban National Wildlife Refuge and the Michou Canal in New Orleans East. And it's a piece of land that is inaccessible to the fire department of New Orleans. So it was really difficult to, to even find out how many acres were burning. It really has been um, a difficult situation to assess, let alone to put out. And so it has required some teamwork from the sewerage and water board and um, the Fish and Wildlife Service who are, are, have been working together to, to, to flood this area. And, you know, naturally, this area would be flooded. It would be wet. It's a mm. swamp. It would not have caught fire had there not been this historic drought going on that dried up the swamp and left this peat, which uh, is decomposing um, plant material, just so dry that it was able to ignite. And so this, this decomposing peat, it's actually used as a fuel in, in many countries. Um, you can dry it and then burn it like coal. So it really creates this, this terrible condition for a marsh fire because the peat is going to continue to fuel the fire. So even flooding the swamp is not necessarily going to put the fire out because the fire is being underground mm. and the peat can contain that heat and the heat can radiate and go to different parts of the swamp until rain comes, really. We're, we're waiting on a lot of rain. So this fire had been burning uncontrolled and possibly even unknown by the landowner. If it's underground, I'm just curious how it gets the, its air. It must be fed somehow by air. Yeah, the air um, gets in from the, um, the top. It's not entirely so that the top of the soil can also be burning. It's just the, the difference, I think, between a peat fire and a more typical wildfire happening in a forest is that a lot of those flames are happening above ground and you can see them very easily, whereas the marsh fire, the heat is contained underground. So you see all this smoke and there's this very thick smoke that gets produced, but you don't necessarily see active flames. Okay. So yeah, there, there are also sometimes if it's burning hot enough and there's enough um, other vegetation that's still alive, 
it could catch fire as well. The I, I actually set a fire um, in my place in Mississippi and it burned for weeks. I didn't know underground. And it was basically the where the original fire was, it became like a reverse chimney. Mm. Sucked the air down. Sucked the air down. Tell us about the drought that's happening. The drought has been really historic. Um, there's a drought across the Mississippi River Basin that's been ongoing since late summer of 2020. But the drought has really hit home in Louisiana this year. Um, it got bad last year as well. Um, and now this year it is continuing and it is worsening. Um, and most of the state is under exceptional drought conditions, which is the, the highest form of drought uh, that is recognized by the government. Um, and the rest of the state is in extreme drought conditions. Extreme drought conditions um, are still arid enough that they can cause saltwater intrusion, crawfish die off, crop irrigation problems, poor air quality, and difficult to extinguish fires, which is what we've seen in New Orleans East um, and also in John Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve. And how is it contributing? Uh, it obviously is contributing also to this to this um, intrusion of the salt that's moving moving up the river. Yeah, the river doesn't have enough water flow at this time because of the drought to keep the salt from from the Gulf of Mexico from entering at the mouth of the river. Um, salt water is naturally heavier than fresh water, so it is kind of crawling along the bottom of the riverbed and seeping up the delta, laying underneath the, the fresh water, but it then mixes with the fresh water and it causes it to be too salty for us to, to drink it or to use it to water our crops. Um, and it's very interesting because the, the fire that's happening in the Barataria Preserve, which is part of the, the Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve could not be flooded. The, the, the National Park Service, which is responding to that fire, determines that it would be ecologically harmful to flood that marsh fire because the water that they would have to use is so salty that it would have unknown effects on the vegetation hereafter so even after it put out the fire, that salt would persist and would cause more damage. So they have had to result to other firefighting methods. And that fire has is under is very is under control and is a lot more monitored and its perimeter is known, its containment is known, and that is because the National Park Service um, has stepped in to really help the Jefferson Parish Fire Department. Hmm. Um, and what's the extended forecast? I, I know it got cold there, but what else? Any any precipitation in the long-term outlook? Yes. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Climate Prediction Center did put out a winter forecast, and they did show a wetter-than-average forecast. So there is hope that these drought conditions should improve in the lower Mississippi Valley and the Gulf Coast. You know, all those funny things like the caterpillar has extra fur or all those little indications are, are favorable for a, a wet winter. 
It's probably a Nutri account. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the Nutri account. Is, the the Nutri are thriving. always. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. But as of right now, there's not any more... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say ever, but there's not a strong possibility for super fog to return. Not with the cold front that just came through New Orleans. That is not the the conditions that make the seasonal fog that would mix with this smoke in order to form the super fog. So that is not a concern as of right now. That we have kind of an unlikely. Um... I don't know if hero is the right word, but we have an, un, the, you know, that we can't really fight this, this fire because it's so far into the, into the swamp. The New Orleans firefighters can't reach it. Um, there's really, there's no helicopters coming to save New Orleans like they are in John Lafitte, right? So what the, what the sewage and water board is the only agency really doing much of anything, right? Well, the fish and wildlife, yeah. Oh, fish and wildlife too, right? Yeah. So the fish and wildlife is working with Sewage and Water Board to pump water from a a pumping station canal into the fire area, and it's it apparently it's it seems like at least from a photo we were sent, it seems like it's sort of um, making some of the fire areas a little island surrounded by a little moat of water, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a you know, everyone loves to kind of hate the sewage and water board, so it's kind of interesting that that they might be the secret ingredient here. The heroes of the day. They need a Hero win. Might be overstating it, but still, yeah. <laughs> they, they deserve a win, I guess. We all need a win once in a while. Right. I mean, is that safe to say, Delaney? Am I overinterpreting that? No, I don't think so. I think the the sewerage and water board is has supplied the pumps that are going to inundate um, this area where the New Orleans East Swamp has been on fire. Um, and they have two pumps that are pumping in 96,000 gallons an hour for 12 hours a day, um, enough to fill nearly two Olympic-sized pools each day into this area. Um, and the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries is actually going into the swamp and moving these pumps around, making sure that the water is getting to the right parts of the swamp so that the fire doesn't spread and that hopefully it will go out. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, managing editor Katie Rechtal, and the co-founder and executive director of The Lens, Karen Gadbois. I'm Marta Jusen, education reporter at The Lens. The Lens has been a vital part of the news landscape, not just here in New Orleans, but nationally as a model for what we do, what we don't do, and perhaps most importantly, what we value. As news organizations shrink and become more and more polarized and entrenched in their camps, we know how important it is to provide ethical, honest, and professional journalism to help you make sense of the news. Please help us continue to provide you with the news that matters to you. Make an online donation today at thelensnola.org. Thank you. Ms. Gadbois, 
you know, one of the headlines that, that grab people's attention lately are, are the outlets that are closing, news outlets around the country closing, um, while at the same time there's a, there's a big effort for um, philanthropy to step in and, and help independent news organizations. Can you talk about what the overall landscape of news in the United States is right now and what organizations like The Lens and you in particular are doing to address the issues? Well, obviously it's a big topic because uh, not only are the you know for-profit news outlets flailing, the sort of star uh, non-profits are also having a hard time. And I use the Texas Tribune as an example, which right. had steady growth over the years. It was a really big operation. And they, <clears throat> I was like the word uh, laid off when it's actually fired, but I'm not sure <laughs> the distinction matters if you're one of the people who's been laid off. Uh, 11 uh, people on the editorial side. And uh, ironically, the day that that was announced on on Threads, a different social media platform, uh, the Texas Tribune was announcing that they were going to start publishing uh, like a weekly good news story. So it was kind of mm. a stark um, contrast. And, and, you know, many of us in this industry that do what I do and, and what Ann does is, uh, uh, you know, we pay close attention to different business models, who's who seems to be thriving, who seems to be struggling, and the Texas Tribune was always held up as a as a model. Yeah, and for many of us, we knew that model wasn't applicable here in New Orleans and 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 in many communities. Um, we, you know, Texas is a big state. Texas has big money. It has a deep, deep. Uh, philanthropic pool um and fundamentally their their coverage was um you know it was political political coverage for the most part nonpartisan but at any rate there was uh there were a number of those kinds of outlets that that you know sharply um cut staff and at the same time or it's you know in in that same space um, there was a big announcement from uh, MacArthur. They were starting something called Press Forward, which sort of had the tagline of saving local journalism hmm. and their, you know, efforts to have a billion dollars over five years, I think it is, to help out and encourage donors and in philanthropy that is not in the media space to come on in. Um, And so, you know, keeping a close eye because they announced the project without having really, well, certainly without having, they don't have a director yet. um, And they certainly don't have any sort of application process. Uh, So it's a very early stage effort. I, along with a number of other organizations, um, started something called um, Anna. It's Anno.News, 
and it's um, a, a group of uh, small uh, alliances, and it's an alliance of nonprofit news outlets. I think there's almost 30 of now, some so small as to be, you know, miracles. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are people in this space who've been at it for years who are making under $40,000 a year. Um, people who are doing it for free, people who are subsidized by their, you know, spouse. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's, they're very bare bones operations. But I think what we all share in common is that we have um, a community that depends on us. And, you know, when I talk about assets, I talk about trust and um, our readers as our assets, um, because those are not things you can create overnight. It's, you know, it's a big deal. So what, so this small organization is basically saying, and, you know, this sort of anxiety within, within the um, industry is that those of us who have been here, and I jokingly say we, we gentrified the space, <laughs> you know, we built the infrastructure, you know, we created a space where there was no space for, you know, a legitimacy for, for presenting and trusting news that's online. Um, and at the time that the lens started well over a decade ago, there were very few. In right. fact, we were part of the initial cohort. So, you know, it's grown our other, INN, which is our other uh, peer organization, went from 24 members to over 400. Wow. Um, and so the, the, the need is greater. And uh, along with the need comes a lot of people who, who are well-connected um, and come from that world, the for-profit news world, and how are entering sort of the fray, which which puts additional stress on on uh, funding. Even as you mentioned, for profit outlets that still exist have have are starting to dip their toes in and maybe even entire bodies into um, trying to get member support, if you will, or philanthropic support. Can you talk about what kind of territory that that puts you in in when you're seeking well, funding? Everyone from Everyone from the New York Times, you know, down <laughs> has a philanthropic arm. Yep. And, you know, I understand, understand the logic of, of reaching readers and the capacity to reach more readers, which is why the for-profit the for models that are entering in some way the nonprofit sector, um, it would be at times there are outlets that are highly collaborative. Um, nonprofit news is by definition a collaborative effort. It's it's uh, not competitive in that way. I mean, we compete, but not in that way. So some of these uh, funds that have gone to for-profits, there could be a way to create a sort of a, a more collaborative 
atmosphere and 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 that would be helpful but i don't I, you know it's it's not in the for profit news model to be collaborative with external outlets although you know we do we do not so much collaborate as we do share stories um and we appreciate that and we enjoy doing that but it would be nice to have something more formal yeah so it's it's many many pressures and I think I was joking with someone the other day about News Desert being a, a bad name for it because deserts are thriving places where things are <laughs> happening. Um, whereas, you know, I don't know. The, it's, you know, it's it's more like it's an easy term to use, but I think there's more of an issue in reaching people rather than actually not having news t- to access. So figuring out how people are going to access your information, what's easiest or what's what channels, so to speak, are they on? Yep, is is one of our issues. You know, Karen, you and I, and potentially Katie, who I think is younger, um, remember a time when there were the the three news organizations at night that would have their nightly news, and that's where pretty much everybody got their news from whether it was I I'm trying to think Dan Rather, you know, or Tom Brokaw before that. Um and I'm so old it was Walter Cronkite. Walter Cronkite, you know, and you you didn't <laughs> even think to question what that news was. That was the news that was delivered to every home. And what I what I mean to say by that is whether that was someone's interpretation of the news that were that particular person's interpretation of the news. Whereas now we've all just become so entrenched and I'm trying to figure, understand this, whether there's a causal relationship here between this splintering of everyone retreating to their camps and living in the echo chambers of, of the news that they want to believe in and how it is that you as an organization continue to to serve up what what we know is to be unvarnished reporting and truth in a in a time when people don't um want that as much they they want to hear their echo chambers right they want to be affirmed in their belief I mean, I think one of the really um, uh, crucial uh, reporting that we've done, which isn't to say that it's all crucial, but I think one area of reporting that that gained the trust was uh, education reporting. I think education reporting had crossed many barriers um, and, and interests from, you know, parents to teachers to those that study it, those that were interested in the charter movement, those that were opposed to the charter movement. I think we provided and still provide a platform for just straight ahead news about education without a particular bias towards charters or not charters is the sort of dividing line. And I and I think that that set, set a tone for people who trusted you know what we have to say or what we have to report and I do think that 
some folks, a lot of folks, have become more discerning in their news consumption. And I think that um, <laughs> the transparency of biases, the transparent is more, uh, you know, obvious now for people to see mm-hmm. that they're not getting um, a full story. So, you know, that's why I feel like the lens amongst our peers um, is so important because we are accountable. I mean, I get the phone calls, I get the emails. Right. Um, I don't, we, we are not shielded from the public in any way, shape or form. Um, and so, you know, I I jokingly said to someone back when I was writing that on my tombstone, it was going to say never had a correction because um, <laughs> I was always ter- terrified um, to get something wrong. You know, it just, you know, I, I didn't want to miss the memo that that declared, you know, that, that showed that my entire premise was off. And I think we give that kind of, cl- you know, tr- clarity to people they could, that they can be it can trust us. And to me, if, if, if the, if the industry grows in such a way that new outlets open up with a bang, um, not just here, but all over the country and the model is not tested and it fails, or at least it falters, then it, 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 it is not, um, it's not good for the industry. I mean, the, the the CEOs of the CEO of Texas Tribune was making four hundred thousand dollars a year. It's you know, if you start looking at salaries and start thinking about budgets and uh, the realities of running a small news nonprofit, um, it's so it's sobering. Yeah. How important are individual funders in the future and big? big um philanthropic support you know i go i go to the post office every month well i go more than every month but every month when i go to the post office um there's a check from one of our readers for seven dollars mm. and that um reader started by giving us two dollars and fifty cents and i remember when that phone call came to to me which was someone saying i want to I would like to give two fifty a month, and we're like, yeah, yay! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we met, and then she told me it was two dollars and fifty cents, which I just thought was wonderful. Um, yeah. And I feel like every month that I get that check, which is now seven dollars, um, I still feel like this this is the best check. Um, yeah. And so the the you know the readers are why, you know, we do what we do. And I think about it all the time. I think about it when we buy, you know, pens or when we pay the rent or yeah. I think, you know, this this comes out of people's pockets. You know, I'm, I, I want to make sure we give them what they're paying for, which is accurate news and information. Um, and I think that has a value that's greater than a splashy sort of uh roll out it's you know we're not the shiny new penny um but we're the you know solid copper and the foundation of a healthy democracy people have to know what's going on 
Right, and that, you know, that whole idea of, um, it, that is constantly being, um, look at this last election, like everyone thought we we're going to go into a runoff. Um, and instead, you know, we, surprise, surprise, end up with a, a governor who, um, I don't think there's one um, of our subject uh, matters that won't be affected by this new administration in ways that are probably most likely not particularly positive. So we'd like to, you know, we'd like to add, and we're working towards a sort of 2020, we went from 2024 budget to a 2024-25, and now Ann and I have decided we're going to go up to 26. Like we're going to do a three-year growth chart and push and push. Delaney's doing a great job on, on the environment. She probably could have two other people there, you know, working with her and, and and still not cover all that needs to be covered because it it's it's from drainage to climate change to you know salty waters and unmitigated flames and historical preservation like it's a huge uh topic yeah and so we would like to be able to you know add healthcare and other other uh crucial I'd love to have someone reporting on insurance. I made this case the other day to an environmental funder that I'd love to have someone follow the insurance industry because ultimately, mm. at the end of the day, insurance companies are going to decide where we live um, or not. And so, what they're you know what they're thinking and how industry is is working around that issue is a, those are important issues to like the use and me's of New Orleans and the region in general. So. I am trying to <laughs> amplify the voice of small uh, publications like ours. And and that was the reason to sort of start this uh, ANO, Association of Nonprofit News Outlets. We have no dues. We have no, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a... Overhead, a lot of overhead. A, <laughs> no overhead. There's a website. That's it. Um, but we, we, you know... We all know what's going on, so to speak, and, and, and would like to sort of speak as one when it comes to making sure that the word local, which is bandied about a lot, actually means local. Right. The OG of the lens and the lens being <laughs> yeah. an OG of uh, independent news in New Orleans. Karen, thank you. That's right. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great weekend. No more super fog. No. No more super fog. I drive that road. <laughs> All right. Be safe out there. All right. You Catch too. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, managing editor Katie Rechtal, and the co-founder and executive director of The Lens, Karen Gadbois. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.